Hello, welcome City Club members, neighbors, friends, Oregonians. It's great to see all of you today. Folks are filtering in. I'm Caitlin Baggett-Davis, welcoming you. Um, we're gonna give people just another minute to join the audience as we get ready for today's debate. It's a beautiful sunny day and looks like we have a great audience showing up. I'm Caitlin Baggett-Davis. I'm president-elect of City Club of Portland and it's my pleasure today to welcome you to today's program and our final debate in the 2022 primary debate seasons. If you are in the audience today and have your ballot and are trying to figure out uh, how you're gonna vote on various issues, you can also look at all of our previous debates on YouTube. Before we begin today, we want to acknowledge that the land we're on is native land and was stolen from the people who lived here for thousands of years. Together, we recognize their unbreakable connections to this land and we honor the resilience of their ancestors and the hope for future generations. With this debate cycle, City Club sustains a tradition of more than 100 years of candidate debates. While much has changed, City Club continues to be an independent and nonpartisan community that's committed to providing a space for people to gather and participate in lively conversations about the critical issues confronting our region. Since our founding, City Club has been a champion for this kind of civic engagement, creativity over partisanship and the common good over narrow self-interests, while also holding space for new voices to be heard. We are building and stewarding an open and inclusive public square where all Oregonians are welcome for the exchange of ideas, discussion and debate about the issues that matter most in our communities and at the ballot box. Today, City Club is hosting a debate between four Republican candidates running for Oregon's next governor, Dr. Bud Pierce, Sandy Mayor Stan Pulliam, Ms. Bridget Barton, and Ms. Jessica Gomez. As we get started, I want to recognize and thank the producers of today's debate, Kayla Kennett and Rebecca Tweed, our American Sign Language interpreters, and the entire volunteer events committee for working so hard to make this event and the whole debate series possible. Thank you all so much. City Club has been sustained over all these years through the generous support of our members, individual donors, foundations, nonprofits, and businesses, large and small. And today, we are grateful for the collective support of all of our members and donors. In particular, I want to thank our debate series sponsors, Chevron, The Standard, Northwest Natural, Tonkin Torque, and the Oregon Business and Industry Association, and the Oregon Association of Hospitals and Health Systems. I'd also like to thank our media partners, KGW News, Open Signal, and X-Ray FM for sharing this program on television and the radio. And thank you for watching and listening. If City Club's work aligns with your values, I hope that you'll support us as we continue to produce forums and debates, lead public policy research and advocate for positive change. In addition to showing up to our events, there are two ways that you can support the work of City Club. You can start by becoming a City Club member. For more than 100 years, our members and supporters have helped City Club hold Oregon's leaders accountable. You can learn more about membership online at pdxcityclub.org slash membership. 
You can also support City Club's work by making a donation today. Our events, which are free to all, are made possible by individual donors like you. Please consider making a gift to help us continue to provide thought-provoking debates and conversations. You can donate now by texting Democracy PDX to 44321. That is Democracy PDX, all one word, to 44321. Or you can give via our website, pdxcityclub.org slash donate. Whether you become a member, make a gift, share the link with a friend, or just watch today's debate, all of us at City Club, thank you for participating and helping us bring the public square to our community. And now for our program. We are delighted to partner with KGW this afternoon as they moderate this debate and broadcast portions of the debate on KGW Channel 8 and on their social media channels. It is now my pleasure to welcome our two moderators from KGW, Laurel Porter and David Mulko. Laurel Porter joined KGW in 2000 after a dynamic career in broadcasting. She anchors KGW News on weeknights and co-anchors KGW News at 11. She also hosts KGW's current affairs show, Straight Talk, which airs Friday nights and in that role won the 2015 Northwest Regional Emmy for Best Host slash Moderator. David Mulko joined KGW in January 2022 as an evening news anchor. A five-time Emmy award-winning journalist and television news anchor and correspondent, he has over 15 years of experience in international, national, and local storytelling. Laurel and David, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Caitlin. And we would like to welcome all of you watching to the 2022 primary debate between the leading Republican candidates in the race for Oregon governor. You know, we are proud to be partnering with the City Club of Portland. And while Laurel and I here have the final word on the questions we pose, the City Club has established the entry threshold for the candidates to join this debate, as well as the guidelines for the overall format for the next 90 minutes or so. So let's introduce you to the candidates joining us virtually today. We'll go in alphabetical order. Bridget Barton is a political consultant and conservative writer. In recent years, she was involved with the Transformation Project, which supported conservative candidates and helped to launch the conservative business magazine, Brainstorm Northwest. More recently, Ms. Barton was president of the PAC, Oregon Pathfinder, a position she left when she announced she was running for governor. She served on a number of boards and committees, including on the Clackamas County Children and Youth Coordinating Council. She lives in West Lynn. Jessica Gomez is the founder and CEO of the small microelectronics manufacturer, Rogue Valley Micro Devices. She serves on the Business Oregon Commission and Oregon Tech Board of Trustees. Ms. Gomez says she personally experienced homelessness as a teenager due to her family's financial struggles. She and her husband started what they call the first state-of-the-art microchip manufacturing facility in Southern Oregon, and she lives in Medford. Bud Pierce was the GOP nominee for governor in 2016. He's a cancer doctor and senior partner of Oregon Oncology Specialists of Salem. During his summers in medical school, he enlisted in the U.S. Marines. He served six years as a Marine reservist and served in the U.S. Naval Reserve as a doctor. Pierce lives in Salem. And Stan Pulliam is the two-term mayor of Sandy, Oregon. That's the town where he grew up and went to Sandy High School. He's an insurance executive. He's also served as a legislative staffer. Mayor Pulliam lives in Sandy. 
And we also need to briefly mention former House Republican leader Christine Drazen dropped out of this debate just about two hours ago. Drazen's campaign manager did not give a reason for her withdrawal. So welcome to you all. And now let's move on to some ground rules here. We're going to begin with opening statements. You'll each have 90 seconds followed by an open question and answer section on everything from homelessness to taxation to leadership candidates. You'll have 60 seconds to answer each question. The City Club has provided a timekeeper. The candidates, you can see the time. Keep in mind that the timekeeper, I should say, may mute you if you go over your allotted time. And candidates, you have agreed to observe those limits and be respectful of one another's time. The City Club has also designated a 30-second free speech pass. You may use one time to make a point at any stage of the Q&A. Just raise your hand. After the main Q&A, we'll have a quick lightning round, followed by a chance for each of you to pose a question to another candidate. And we'll have more details on that a little bit later. And then finally, we're going to wrap up with some questions we have selected from those submitted by City Club members followed by your closing statements then. Also keep in mind, Laurel and I could jump in at any time in this debate to follow up or ask for responses at any time here. And just one quick note before we get started, you've all agreed to be addressed by your first names as we progress through the debate. We're going to begin with opening statements. The order was determined by a random drawing conducted earlier by the City Club. We'll go in the same order for opening and closing statements. When we get to questions, we'll be alternating who goes first. And Stan Pulliam, you're first. Your opening statement, please. You have 90 seconds. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. My name's Stan Pulliam. I'm the same Stan Pulliam who stood up and fought back as mayor of my local community of Sandy against Governor Kate Brown's extreme mandates and shutdowns. You see, our movement began one afternoon in a small diner here in our community full of small business owners. Together, we made a decision that day that we are going to stand up and we are going to fight back. We've been fighting every day since. You see that fight as we were the first to stand up and call out the defund the police movement in the city of Portland and called it out for what it is, a culture of criminality. You see us fighting as we stand with parents across the state against the comprehensive sex education and gender identity being taught to young kids in our schools. You see us in the fight as we are in downtown Portland confronted by Antifa and we look the extreme left-wing terrorist group in the eye and refuse to back down. We believe strongly that Republicans are looking for a fighter and that we're absolutely that guy. We're gonna take this fight all the way to the governor's office. Thank you so much for having me this afternoon. And thank you, Mayor Pulliam. Uh, Bridget Barton, you are up next. Your opening statements, 90 seconds, please. Thank you. It's great to be here today. I'm Bridget Barton, and I'm a relentlessly optimistic Republican. I'm also the real Republican outsider in this race. And what I mean by that is I have I am not a politician. I haven't held political office. I have no aspirations for a long term political career. I have nothing to lose. So I own and don't owe anyone anything so I can do anything once I'm elected. I have a 30 years experience as an advocate and a spokesperson on education reform, on natural resource issues and on business issues around the state. So I have a great deal of experience to bring to the office. Voters have to answer two questions. They've got 18 candidates to choose from. The first is, how, which candidate do you think is really gonna stand up for you and push back hard, turn things upside down and get things done? Who's strong enough to do that? The second question is, who can get elected in the general election? To the first point, I'll say this, 
I have a history of doing hard things from starting my own conservative magazine to bringing the first lawsuit against Kate Brown, helping organize that. Uh, I'm how do you know I'm a rock solid Republican? Look at my endorsements. Lars Larson, Oregon Right to Life, sheriffs around the state, business owners around the state. They know that I can take it to the Democrats in the general election. I can't wait to look at those career politicians and tell them the people want their power back. Thank you. Thank you, Bridget. And Dr. Bud Pierce, your opening statement, you have 90 seconds. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm Dr. Bud Pierce. I run simply to make your lives better. It's about you and it's not about me. And I look to lead us collaboratively to solve the vexing problems that we face. We must have a safer society, people safe, property protected. We must get the homeless off the streets once and for all into lives of meaning and contribution and not desperation. We must radically improve the quality and the performance of our schools and no longer only have one third of our 11th graders reading at federal minimums and doing math at federal minimums. And we must have great jobs. We must have great businesses so Oregonians can have great jobs with great pay and great benefits. And we must bring back the natural resource-based economy. I've had an interesting life that has prepared me well for this task. I grew up simply, my dad was a custodian. He died when I was 14 years old. I was working when I was 15. I've worked ever since. I received two doctorate degrees and I'm a practicing physician. I've led in the field of medicine. I've loved our state in medicine, serving as a president of the Oregon Medical Association. I've built our business 25 fold in a time in which private practices are going away. And I've led in the fields of philanthropy, getting done small projects and large projects, including a $50 million project for free medical care before the Affordable Care Act. I'm prepared to serve. I ask for Oregonians to vote for me so I can serve you so you can have better lives. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Pierce. And Jessica Gomez, your opening statement now. 90 seconds, please. Thank you so much. I'm Jessica Gomez. I'm running because Oregon needs a CEO and a leader who will bring balance to our state and deliver a return on investment to taxpayers. Uh, it's been what we're in the last two weeks uh, of this campaign or this leg of the campaign. And I've been out for almost a year now all around our state and each of our regions are beautiful and unique and have their own distinct culture. And there's a great strength in that. And I believe Oregonians will come together for solutions, but in order to do that, it's gonna take a leader who listens first. And I'll tell you what I'm hearing. I am hearing how people are frustrated and feeling hopeless and really unhappy with the overall direction of our state. And I think that you know, we can do so much better. My priorities for us are focused on the future. You know, we can teach our kids how to think, not what to think, improve educational outcomes in public school. We can have a great public university system and focus on keeping our community safe and getting our unsheltered homeless off the street and into long-term rehabilitation programs. And we also have to work on livability issues in this state. Housing is too expensive. You look at gas, groceries, price of drugs. Uh, we need to work on those things that really impact Oregonians' ability to thrive and grow in this state. And that's what I'll do as your next governor. Thank you. All right, thank you all for those statements. We're gonna to move to questions now and start with breaking news. Now in the last 24 hours, Politico published a draft opinion from the US Supreme Court that indicates it plans to overturn Roe v. Wade. That of course is the landmark 1973 decision that guarantees 
federal constitutional protections for abortion. So today the court confirmed that draft opinion is authentic, though of course we should note that decision is not final. Now, whatever the final outcome here, Republican governors in many states have worked to pass new restrictions on abortion, including in our neighboring state, Idaho. In Oregon, the right to an abortion is protected in the state constitution. If elected, what changes, if any, would you make regarding abortion access in Oregon? And if Roe v. Wade is overturned, what will your response be as governor? We begin with Jessica Gomez. You'll go first. A reminder, please keep your answers here to 60 seconds. Please go ahead. Thank you. I'm so glad that we're being asked this question right now. Uh, I happen to be pro-choice. Uh, I believe that that is constitutionally protected right now. And I really urge the Supreme Court to uphold that. That being said, uh, it's it's codified in, in Oregon state law. And so uh, for me, you wouldn't see uh, changes um, to uh, this piece of, of uh, Oregon law. And I think you know we need to support women's health. It's really an important part. Oregon is pro-choice. I'm pro-choice and we should remain that way. All right. Thank you, Ms. Gomez. Uh, Bud Pierce, you're up next. Same question. So I'm pro-life, uh, but I believe in obeying the law. If elected governor, I'm not the law, and I will obey the laws of the United States and of Oregon. My effort will be on to better support uh, pregnant women in their pregnancy after their children are born, to better support child care efforts and educational efforts so no one feels the pressure to have an abortion because they feel like it's too much, too overwhelming to bring a child into the world. That's my answer. Dr. Pierce, I do want to clarify here, though, where you stand. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, would you agree or disagree with that decision? Uh, I believe that the Constitution does not protect uh, in the Constitution a right to an abortion. I believe it's up to the states to decide, and Oregon has strong laws uh, that currently uh, protect uh, their rights. So I will obey the law. So you would support that decision. I did want to ask you, because in 2016, when you ran for governor, you were in favor of Oregon's existing abortion policy. Why the flip-flop? Well, it's not really a flip-flop. I was uh, supported by Oregon Right to Life. What I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of faith. Um, I went through a, 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 some trauma with uh, Selma's passing, uh, you know, re-looked re at my faith and the strength of my faith and uh, came to the conclusion that um, I'm in my heart and soul uh, pro-life. And so that's where I am. And again, I'll obey the law, uh, the laws of Oregon and of the, uh, of the uh, Constitution of the United States. And again, my effort will be on supporting women who are pregnant so that they'll want to continue their pregnancy if they so desire uh, and not feel the pressure because it's so difficult to have a child that they'll not want to have the child. And you mentioned your wife Selma's passing and our condolences to Selma and to you as well. I'm going to move on to Bridget Barton. If elected, what changes, if any, would you make regarding abortion access in Oregon? And if Roe v. Wade is overturned, what will your response be as governor? So first of all, this was a, a, a terrible breach of security and, and truly an attack on our democracy, on our form of constitutional government. So this was an appalling act by whoever perpetrated it. Most likely this came from uh, the radical leftists, the same people who have driven our state into the ditch with their very fanatical progressive leftist policies and an inability to really solve our real problems. That being said, I would agree with the decision. I am pro-life. Like most people in the state of Oregon, I disagree with the policies we have in place now that allow uh, abortions up to and including the moment of birth 
taxpayer funded abortions and now millions of dollars allocated for what we are now referring to as abortion vacations for people outside the state to come in here, use our taxpayer dollars for their abortions. Most Oregonians, I believe, don't agree with that. They should elect a pro-life sensible governor like myself. Well, Bridget, since it is enshrined in the state constitution, what do you think you could do as governor to make any changes? Without legislative approval, clearly nothing. Uh, as, as the governor, I would need the legislature to act first. And as you know, we have super minorities at this moment. We'll see what we get coming forward with a red wave. And just to quickly follow up there, where would you start though? Waiting periods, parental consent. What's your thinking here, Bridget? Uh, we'd ha we have got a long ways to go to push back from where we are. I would try to get rid of those abortion funded, abo I mean, taxpayer funded uh, vacations here to have abortions. I would uh, pull back taxpayer funding for abortions. That would be a goal. And I would try to get back to where most Oregonians that as polled are now, which is only up to the second trimester. None, no third trimester or at the moment of birth abortions. And that seems to be where most Oregonians are. All right, thank you for that. I, I just wanna point out before we get to you, Mayor Pulliam, that there is uh, no evidence at this moment of where that leak came from, only that the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice there has directed the court to investigate the matter. So Mayor Pulliam, question to you, same question. Yeah, I, I sure hope Oregon right to life, their board, their funders or activists are watching this debate. These answers are a complete embarrassment for anyone who's received the Oregon Right to Life endorsement. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is what all the work, the hard work and the donations and the activism has been all about, the overturning of, of Roe versus Wade. So what I say, my opinions have not changed. They have not changed from the day before this announcement was revealed to what it is today, which is I will sign any piece of pro-life legislation that comes across my desk, any piece of pro-life legislation that we can restrict the abortions happening in this state, a state that's essentially become a tourism state for abortion. You can have abortions from conception all the way until the afterbirth of that child. I would sign any restriction that we can have. I think Oregon Right to Life, especially on the heels of the, of the, of the televised debate last week with the watered down answer from Christine Drazen, where she said she would only veto bills that extended abortion access as if that's even possible. I think they should relook uh, re at their endorsement. Uh, Stan, you mentioned uh, Right to Life, the anti-abortion group, Oregon Right to Life did not endorse you. What's your response? Yeah, I think I think it's it's gross, especially now when you consider when you look at how the other candidates are answering this question. Now that it's come true, this is the moment of truth, right? Where are candidates on this issue? I have a hundred percent completed positive pro-life questionnaire in front of Oregon Right to Life. I have an, a, a history of activism on this issue. I certainly deserve the endorsement, and I think that they should look at it again. They didn't endorse you, though, because other parts of your life didn't square with what they feel are conservative with, with their mission? Christian values. Yeah, well, and, well um, I don't I apologize, Laura, but I don't I don't see any of those things in their mission statement. Their mission statement is about protecting life, uh, the sanctity of life, the life of the unborn. And I'm a hundred and twenty percent advocate, you know, for those issues. 
And I, I did want to mention, unfortunately, we are not able to ask Christine Drazen the question since she dropped out of the debate, but she has been endorsed by the uh, anti-abortion group Oregon Right to Life. Did you have another response? I just wanted to follow up with Jessica, give you a chance to follow up on this question and draw you out a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, so at NBC News analysis of the Center for Reproductive Rights data, that's an abortion rights group, shows 23 states would institute bans trigger laws are on the books in 13 of those states. So Jessica, my question is, if Roe v. Wade falls, would you support Oregon as a growing refuge where people from other states could legally obtain abortion, a growing refuge, and to what extent, if so? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think that we should be paying for other uh, people's health care that don't live in our state. And I know that there was some dollars that were allocated uh, recently for that purpose. Uh, I think we're going to see some changes. Uh, I don't know what they're going to look like. Um, this decision isn't final yet. Uh, but uh, in general, I, I think that we should keep our funding for health care uh, for Oregonians. Um, I would also like to mention, too, that we have these candidates here are have all stated that they're in favor of medical freemen when it comes to mass vaccines. Um, and it's really inconsistent. And I'd like to you know, point that out. I think um, this is uh, about bodily autonomy. And I am, you know, I am supportive of medical freedom. That includes abortion, vaccines and any any other procedures that are legally available. So for the record, uh, yes, uh, Bud Pierce, you want to have use your free speech pass? On the pro-life issue, I think those of us on the pro-life uh, view the issue as protecting life. And it's not a medical procedure in our mind and that's uh, in, our, in our view. So that's why or the disagreement lies. And we society has to move forward and make its decision on the pro-life side. We're always going to push for life over death. And we don't view uh, an abortion as a medical procedure. And that's the disagreement. And uh, in a uh, civil society will work through our disagreements and uh, live together. But on the pro-life side, we're always going to push hard for life. And Bridget Barton, did you also raise your hand for a free speech pass or you want to save yours? I think I'll save it. I'll save it. OK. And I did just for a visual, I did want to ask all of you if Roe v. Wade is overturned, how many of you raise your hand? How many of you would defend the, the right in the Oregon State Constitution protecting women's right to abortion? Raise your hand if you would defend that current policy. So, so Bud Pierce, you also raised your hand. So you would defend the current policy, even though you say you're right to life. I'm against the policy as a law, but again, I'm elected as governor. Uh, I have to obey the law. I'm not the law. And what I need to do is work with right to life and other pro-life organizations to change the hearts and minds of Oregon citizens. I think that elected officials should never become the law or try to become the law or to defend the law, we need to change the law. And I'm, I'm gonna push hard for that, but I am not the law if I'm elected governor of Oregon. Officially, right, thank you, Ken. officially the third answer from Dr. Pierce on this issue. Right. I thought you asked about the policy, not the law, following the law. Of course, all of us as governor are gonna follow the law. All right, candidates, thank you. We're gonna move on to another subject. We're in an unusual situation where we have five candidates in this debate. We have four now with Christine Drazen dropping out, 19 total in a very crowded field in the Republican primary. And we could see a winner emerge with a relatively small percentage of the vote. What sets you apart from your opponents that makes you capable of becoming the first Republican to be the governor of Oregon in more than 40 years? We'll begin with Bud Pierce. 
Oh, I had uh, remarkable success in 2016 in my first run, uh, achieved a lot of uh, crossover votes, uh, and again, resonated with a lot of people, both within the Republican Party and outside of the Republican Party. So I have a great confidence in that. Uh, we have the um, good fortune of uh, Senator Betsy Johnson joining as an independent candidate, uh, been in the legislature roughly 20 years, a Democrat, votes greater than 90% of the time with the Democratic caucus. And so uh, we hope uh, and I believe that uh, what we'll see uh, in our elections the same as when Ross Perot and George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton uh, all ran and uh, Ross Perot took away a number of votes from the Republican president and Bill Clinton won with a minority of the vote. So it's set up for us. I believe I'm the candidate who can do it. All right, thank you, Bridget. How about you? What sets you apart? What makes you be the could be the first Republican to win the governor's seat in 40 years? First of all, I think I'm going to I am going to do it. Uh, and it's because, you know, when I travel the state, people around Oregon and this is regardless of party are so fed up. They're so frustrated. They are so angry at the career politicians. And this is actually on both sides of the aisle because they get into these partisan bickering debates and they do not solve problems. Now, I have spent the last 30 years working on policy and problems, and I am laser focused on getting these things accomplished for the people taking care of homelessness, getting our schools back in order, getting natural resources back in use in for rural Oregon. And I mean, getting to the bottom of substance abuse and homelessness. They know that I'm the candidate that will get that done and stay out of this partisan divide, stay out of this bickering because I have nothing to lose and I don't owe anything to anybody. And that includes the party. And Stan, why are you the one who can win this? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's because I'm the one that's elected and you can look at my past experience and, and my leadership. You know, I've talked a lot about Republicans are looking for a fighter and we've been in this fight. We were in the fight. You saw us stand up and support our local Main Street small businesses and our children, our young families here in Oregon, uh, in our community of Sandy, you know, during the lockdowns. Uh, you see me as mayor. When we faced nearly a million dollars in debt in our police department. We backed the blue. We filled that debt today. We have more officers on the street than when we began, one of the only fully staffed departments across the entire state. You see where we're at when we're, we're calling out the culture of criminality and the defund the police movement. You also see it in the last exchange, right? When we travel around, we give the same answers to the questions and conservative, you know, meeting rooms as we do when we're talking to, you know, the mainstream media. We're the candidate that actually talks to the issues that concern Oregonians the most. You know where we're at clearly on these issues, and we have a, tra a proven track record of success of standing up for those. Thank you, Stan. And Jessica, what sets you apart? Now, for me, um, this is all about policy. It's all about leadership. And I have the best policies out of all of our candidates um, that are up here today. It's also about electability. And you have to have someone that makes it through this primary that is going to be a great general election candidate. I think my business background also sets me apart and it's going to set me apart in the general election. Uh, when you look at who we have potentially running on either side, 
that's going to be important. Again, that CEO and that leadership ability to build teams and deliver value back to Oregonians um, is important. And the issues that, we're, that I'm focusing on are really, they're Oregon issues. They're not partisan issues. Everybody wants great schools. We want a great economy. We have to be able to be globally competitive. And we need to be safe in our, in our communities. And I think that translates really well to the rest of our state. All right. Thank you all. Let's move on to taxes now. Former state representative Jules Bailey, a Democrat, recently described Oregon in an interview as a, quote, high tax state with low services and, quote, stuff is not working, he said, though he used a different word that is not for a family friendly audience here. Do you agree with that sentiment? How would you fix it? And will you commit today to no new state taxes? Bridget, we'll begin with you. Oh, great. Absolutely. Uh, not a, I've said publicly, uh, I would suspend the gas tax immediately. I would I would commit to re, uh, signing absolutely no new taxes in the first four years and no new regulations as well. Uh, this we have to get government back down to size. I would say, you know, Oregon state government, let's compare it, say, to Colorado. It's about twice as large as it needs to be. It's it, the government itself is too big. We are very, very heavily taxed here. We need to get, give a big breather to business in order to change our reputation nationally and internationally as an anti-business state. When I take office, these signals that I will send out and the appointments I will make and the commitments to no new taxes will send a signal across the world that Oregon is back open for business, welcomes business, and we support our working families across the state. All right. Thank you, Stan. Same question to you. Yeah, no new taxes, no new regulations. Absolutely. We'll commit to that. And really, you know, it's not working. You think about the cover Oregon problems that had on the online uh, uh, application of that just a few years back. You think about during times of crisis during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we're closing down businesses, Main Street businesses across the state. Of course, if you're a business owner, you know when you know there's no greater sense of responsibility that rests on their shoulders and the livelihoods of their employees. It's the middle of the holiday season. It's Christmas. These folks can't even get their unemployment checks. It's broken. And we don't talk enough about the fact that the next governor is going to have the opportunity to appoint hundreds of new agency directors, heads, uh, folks that implement a lot of these policies that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So absolutely, I will look to absolutely clean house. I like to say that we'll reignite the timber industry with all the pink paper we're gonna be handing out to state agency heads. We're gonna look to clean house because after 40 years of one party control, absolute power corrupts absolutely and we'll change that. All right, Jessica Gomez, same question to you. Yeah, absolutely no taxes. We need a breather. Uh, we've seen every single legislation, legislative session that comes, um, additional fees, additional taxes. We saw the tax, the, the CAT tax, which is, you know, increase the cost uh, across supply chains for Oregon businesses and has increased the, the cost of overall living. You think about, you know, the cost of, of pharmaceutical drugs and our seniors that are struggling to be able to afford uh, pharmaceutical drugs in this state, along with the price of gas and what we see in inflation, which is, I think it, it's compounded by the decisions that we made in Oregon. The, the thing is really, what do we do about it? And I think as governor, you've got to veto anything that really raises the cost of groceries 
gas, uh, food, drugs. Uh, and then, you know, we really need to work on changing the culture around delivery. Oregon needs to be a state that can deliver services appropriately. And we are not capable right now. We see the results of that. And finally here, Dr. Pierce. And no new taxes. Uh, we're in a highly regulatory environment. Our medical practice is approaching $150 million in gross revenue. So we're a pretty big a business. And about a third of our effort is spent in regulation and red tape. And that's throughout all our industries. And that really, really has to stop. Uh, you know, one of the uh, interests I have is in property tax reform. It hasn't been brought up. I'm aware uh, of our situation that uh, many very affluent nonprofits don't pay property taxes because of their nonprofit status. That includes large insurance uh, companies, major medical centers and such. And what I would uh, like to do uh, in terms of cutting taxes is to have major uh, property tax um, reform in which those who have uh, plenty of resources and uh, are brought into the uh, system. And by doing that, we can probably lower our individual homeowners property taxes by about a third. So I'll be pushing really, really hard for that. Uh, and we also need to have uh, some impact on land use planning. We lost $100 billion in Intel investment because we didn't have land to build factories. Uh, we need to change that. All right, thank you, bud. We're going to move to crime now. There have been more than 483 confirmed shootings in Portland so far this year and 32 shooting homicides. Do you feel safe walking through downtown Portland? And what specific steps will you take as governor to address safe streets and gun violence? And we'll begin with Stan Pulliam for this one. But do I feel safe? I, I couldn't even go to downtown Portland on Saturday for a campaign meeting without being confronted by Antifa. We called the police. It was over, you know, almost 20 minutes until someone answered the phone. We were right across the street, you know, from their precinct there. Nobody responded. So absolutely don't feel safe. I, I, I also want to kind of, you know, push back on gun violence. You know, this isn't a gun problem. These guns aren't just walking around and, and shooting themselves. We have problems. We have a culture of criminality. You know, in the 70s, we had 30 officers per 100,000 people. That number today is eight. We have proposals to triple the size, you know, of, of the state police. But, you know, we've we've decriminalized hard drugs, you know, in this state. We've basically created a marketplace for folks to buy and sell hard drugs. And then we allowed the cartels to come through and to fill the vacuum. And we wonder why we have all the gang violence and problems going on the street, exasperating our homelessness and, and everything else. So we have strong proposals to address it. And absolutely, uh, I don't feel safe walking around the city of Portland. And that's going to change under a polium administration. And we should say Portland police have said they are investigating the incident that you mentioned. Jessica Gomez, your answer to that question. Yeah, I have a friend that uh, is giving me access to a little place in, in downtown Portland, and it, it really depends on where you are. Uh, and that's just like any other city. However, uh, we have a significant issue with public safety, and it's not just Portland, it's in other parts of our state. So what do are we going to do about that? And I think we need to if we're talking specifically about Portland, we've got to start with cleaning up um, that downtown area, getting rid of the blight, getting homeless off the street and into rehabilitation programs and preparing uh, that city for reinvestment, right? Because if we want businesses to come back, we have to send the signal that we're stable and we're safe. It's absolutely 
vital. Um, there are lots of people, no matter what community um, you live in, you should feel safe in your community. Um, and I think it starts with bringing about the, the pride in where you live. People want to feel proud about their city. We can get back to that and we will under my leadership. Thank you, Jessica. Bud? Yeah, definitely not safe. My late wife and I purchased a uh, second home in uh, Pearl uh, 14 years ago. You could walk all over the place any time of day and night felt safe. Now you don't feel safe at all in, in many times. We need to uh, support the police uh, much better, more police, better training, better equipment, a governor and a government that stands by their side. We need to have a, a police that's aggressive in taking away weapons from uh, drug cartels and from gangs. We need to have programs so that young people don't go into gangs and in fact, uh, you know, have activities that, that are beneficial to them and to society. And we must get the homeless off the streets once and for all. And that whole criminal culture of, of homelessness, drug use, and alcohol misuse. We have a lot of work to do, and I'll get it done. And Bridget. Yes, crime, as, as everyone knows, is skyrocketing, is completely out of control and continues to climb higher each year. And it isn't just Portland. And I refuse to just talk about it in terms of Portland because it's all over the state. But to be direct, yes, I feel completely unsafe in downtown Portland. And as, at the age of 66, my husband and I finally ha had to go out and get a permit to get have a gun, to register and get firearms because of our expectation that we would not have law enforcement if we needed it. At the base of this, if you ask law enforcement across the state, and I have, the problem is substance abuse. The problem is that we passed ballot measure 110, which legalized hard drugs, and it skyrocketed that substance abuse problem. I will get to the bottom of that. In my first year as governor, I'll marshal the forces necessary to refer that ballot measure back to the public. That has to be eliminated. Every law enforcement officer almost in the entire state agrees, or we are in trouble in this state. All right. Thank you, Bridget. We're going to move on. Dr. Pierce mentioned it briefly to homelessness and they are linked. What would you do as governor to help the thousands of people who are homeless move off the streets and onto a healthier path? And we're going to begin here with Jessica Gomez. Yeah, so the unsheltered homeless and what we see happening in our urban areas is a result of addiction uh, and mental health. And so the, the question is, what do we do about that? And in this state, we're like number one in addiction and almost number 50 in actual services that people have access to. And if you talk to police officers, you know, this is taking up about 15 to 30% of their time. They're trying to work with people that are in crisis on our streets. And there's really only two options. They can take them to the emergency room or they can take them to jail. So we need infrastructure. And so the plan that I have is based after uh, the elderly care model. It's three levels of care. It's community-based. Um, first level is where you would have, uh, let's say, your memory care uh, patients, then you would have assisted living and independent living. And we need to start with our people that are struggling with addiction and mental health that are unsheltered and start them with the most secure level of care and get them healthy and stabilized. And then we got to make it so that we're not seeing people camping on our streets and we have to say no to that. And that's your time here. Bud, same question to you here. So declare a substance use disorder and a homeless emergency to get government all on the same page. Uh, shelters have to be available for every uh, homeless person living on the street that begins to address uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, mental illness, uh, begin to prepare people to re-enter the mainstream culture, to have lives of contribution and not desperation. 
um, individuals, this is voluntary, but if people don't want to participate or won't end up back on the street, then they will be breaking the law. It's illegal to camp and live on the streets and in the parks along the riverbanks. At that point in time, their choice will be a locked shelter or some form of incarceration until they will uh, participate uh, in uh, improving their lives, bettering their lives, or they find private accommodation, but no living on the streets. All right, thank you. I just want to address briefly before we get to Bridget and Stan, and we will get to you. Uh, you both touched on addiction. Of course, this impacts people from all walks of life, families, teens, and seniors. Federal data shows Oregon is the worst in the nation per capita when it comes to illegal substance abuse. We are also worst in the country per capita for access to treatment. So experts who work in this area give us a grade F on addiction treatment. I'm gonna move this over to Bridget. You mentioned measure 110, of course. Uh, give me a sense of where you stand either on fixing our broken addiction system or, or on homelessness here, your choice. I'll do both. Your stats show this has been an abysmal failure, our homeless policy, and our career politicians should be ashamed. So I bring some unique experience and expertise I understand this at a gut level and at an intellectual level because I'm 40 years in recovery. I, when I stopped drinking at 28, I was a chronic round the clock alcoholic. I understand at this very deep level, what we are doing is backwards. We do not have a homeless problem. We primarily have a substance abuse problem on our streets. And we are enabling these people to commit slow suicide. Is, this is not compassionate. It is absolutely inhumane. I would set up a database. I would then go to low barrier homeless shelters that would push these people off the street and at least get a roof over their head, then reallocate all this housing money back to treatment. We need to turn the housing first model on its head. I'll tell you what, we have created a homeless industrial complex and I will put an end to it and I will get the homeless off the street and get the problem solved. And that's time there. Uh, Stan, same question on homelessness or on fixing our treatment issues and access to addiction treatment. Yeah, former Portland Mayor Bud Clark, he had a three-prong approach. The first was is to provide help to those who want it, the second to be firm with those who don't, and to create and foster safe and livable communities where small business and neighbors can thrive. And what you just heard is all the candidates talk about that first prong approach, providing help to those who want it. And they talk about wraparound services, multi-layer tier, uh, mental health, uh, drug prevention, and we need all of those things. But we're the only candidate who's focusing any attention on that second prong. Uh, being firm with those who don't. And it's not people who want care and assistance who are stealing these catalytic converters and creating this crime all over the state. We have a proposal to house an alternative location under that Ninth Circuit ruling uh, on Port of Portland property. We can have property there that we house folks. Uh, and then we have our own police security firm on, as Port of Portland's governor. We appoint the next commissioner. Uh, we can get security beefed up there. And when those folks break rules in the law, they go to jail. We're also have proposals to triple the size of the state police, but we're going to be firm with- Dan, that's your time. I'm gonna jump in here, but I just wanna draw you up briefly, maybe 10 or 15 seconds. You mentioned Portland city property. How is governor, are you going to do that? How are you gonna work with city officials who may not agree with your plan or be vehemently opposed to that? Well, that's what uh, leadership is about. Leadership is getting people on the same page uh, to get them to agree that your goals are not to hurt people, they're to help people. Uh, and we must take a different approach and a different stand. So leadership is about getting people to, to come along, agree on an idea and then executing a plan. That's what my life's been about. And I have confidence I can do it. 
And Bud, same question to Stan, actually. Sorry, with the connection and the virtual delay, sometimes it's a bit tough. So Stan, how would you work with the city of Portland to implement that kind of plan? Well, actually, just a couple of weeks after we put together our plan, Sam Adams uh, actually had a plan that was very similar to ours, copying our plan. Uh, unfortunately, what we saw was is they couldn't muster the local you know, support to be able to put that into place. That's exactly why it needs to be done at the state level. That's why we need to use state resources to do it. That's why we need to use Port of Portland uh, property, and we need to enforce uh, our rules. So uh, we, if the city of Portland's not willing to stand up, as our next governor, we certainly will. It's a big reason why we're looking to triple the size of the state police. We're also looking to deputize a small portion of the state police's U.S. Marshals. That way, when they arrest folks, you know, for breaking federal crimes, those folks go in the federal judiciary, into the federal. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wrap you up there because we've got to move on in the interest of time here, but thank you. I did want to revisit something that Bud said that I want to clarify. Did you say that you would incarcerate or jail people who were homeless, who wouldn't move off the street into shelters? No, I would say if they were breaking, uh, well, I would say if they're breaking the law after having access to a shelter and voluntary programs to help themselves and then insisted on going back uh, on the streets and living there or in the parks, in my mind, they're breaking the law and there has to be a penalty. Uh, I think an appropriate penalty is to move them off the streets and into some form of a locked shelter incarceration. I would do that. It's not breaking the law to be poor or mentally ill or drug addicted. It's, it's against the law to live on the streets when you have an alternative that is there to serve you. So if they don't take you up on the alternative to go to a shelter, you think that it's okay to put them in jail? For a period of time, I think that is correct. Thank you, Bud. I wanna move on to, to the pandemic and what you would have done differently from Governor Brown with COVID, including school closures and how the Oregon Health Authority responded to that crisis. What would you have done differently, Jessica? So I think in the beginning, every everywhere across the world, including many, many states, followed um, pandemic mitigation uh, strategy uh, because we didn't know anything. Uh, the problem that I think we had in Oregon is, again, um, starts at the state agencies, and it's really about effectiveness and our ability to actually get the job done. And right now, we struggle. We struggled with the employment department um, getting out on employment checks. We struggled with some of the programs that were put in place to help people. We struggled with the, the vaccine rollout. And we were also shut down, I think, for way too long. In fact, in places that had high numbers like New York, they actually opened their schools that following September and we were unable to get it done. And so as governor, it really starts with the prep work and making sure those agencies um, are, uh, are able to execute when you have a situation where you're in crisis. And uh, right now we have a lot of work to do. And Bud Pierce, what would you have done differently? I worked through the whole pandemic uh, early on, lots of fear. I think uh, some of the uh, draconian measures put into place were uh, okay at the beginning, although right from the beginning, we have to get buy-in from local people living in the trenches of life. Local officials were all on the same page, we're on the same team. Uh, early on, the data was very positive for Oregon. We're doing great. Um, and we found out early on that the most at risk were the people over the age of 75 and 85 children very lightly affected. I've seen data, a thousand children have died of COVID. I've seen recently a hundred out of 73 million. So early on, we have to recognize that there are differences. One size fits all doesn't work. And again, 
um, rapidly move to voluntary implementation of restrictions because you have to have different restrictions in different settings. You get the right size and the right response when uh, people make decisions locally, government in support of local decisions, not mandating from above. And the great fear instilled in the population causes many deaths from the, the, the fear brought on through, through stress and suicides and, and overdose deaths as a COVID infection itself. Thank you, Bud. And Bridget? Yes, uh, from the beginning, I would have instituted absolutely no mandates, none whatsoever. We are free, intelligent, adult Oregonians. We can make decisions for ourselves. Would not have uh, imposed any school closures, any business closures, any mask mandates, any vaccine mandates, none of the above. I mentioned earlier that I helped organize the first lawsuit against Kate Brown when she unconstitutionally extended her emergency orders. I would not have done that. I would have done followed the law that was in place, a more recent law that would have stated that it had to go to the legislature at that point. Because unlike the left, I actually believe in representative government. I like smallest government first. And I agree with what Bud said, you have to, would need to go county by county to even as governor to help the counties because these problems were different in different areas, but no mandates ever. And our hospitals wouldn't be in the mess that they're in if they hadn't terminated all those first responders. That was an appalling act. Bridget, thank you. And Stan. I'm so happy you're asking this question because I think a lot of the viewers are probably asking themselves the same thing. Where were these candidates on this issue? Well, you all know where Mayor Stan was. We were solidly in the fight. And, and I'm sorry, but being in the fight's a lot more than just sending a small donation, you know, do a lawsuit. You've got to be in the fight. And the problem with Governor Brown's mandates was the one size fits all. The fact that it didn't make any sense. It's all political science, not not actual science. We could jam pack in some of the biggest corporations in this country, big box corporate America, but we couldn't support a local Main Street small business owner. Some of the most rich and elite among us, folks who could send their kids to private school, their kids were able to be in the classroom full time, five days a week. Us middle class kid, uh, folks, our kids were stuck in virtual and hybrid learning. It was a complete disgrace. We would look to have incentivized retired nurses to come back to work for hospital capacity, alternative treatments to keep people out of the hospital and, and local control. That's how we would have led in this pandemic. And Stan, in terms of what you just mentioned in education wise, a study from Brook Brookings shows reading and math scores have dropped nationwide and knowing you can't undo the decisions that Oregon's leaders made around school closures moving forward what plan do you have for students to catch up? Let me be specific here. Uh, question here is going to Bud first. Well, what we have to do is we have to uh, work harder. You know, we have to have uh, enrichment programs during the summer. We might have to have programs that are after school. Uh, the, the fact is, even before the pandemic, we had one third in Salem-Kaiser, one third of our students in 11th grade at federal minimums for mathematics and reading. So we have so much work to do in educational reform. Uh, but for right now, we're, we're going to have to double down on, on uh, classroom uh, participation, studies, study halls, uh, rally the parents, rally the teachers, uh, rally society so children can catch up. We, we're, we're down, but we got we to gotta fight back. All right, Bridget, same question to you. A plan to have students catch up here. 
Okay, our public schools are in immediate need of triage. They are in shambles. I believe they estimate 30,000 students will have left the public schools escaping. And it's not just because of the pandemic and we know it, it's because of the indoctrination of a very leftist agenda. That 30,000 number would be a lot higher if there was any room left in any private school in the state, which there is not, or if it didn't cost a fortune. I've been an advocate for 30 years for education reform. When I'm elected governor, first step, a new deputy superintendent of public instruction, second, an absolute complete change of vision focused on core academic excellence, new curriculums that will filter down. They're trying letters in Portland Public School. You know what that is? That's phonics. It's about time. Maybe our kids can finally learn to read. Thank you, Bridget. And we're just going to ask a couple of you questions now, just in the interest of time, we won't ask all of you uh, these questions. None of you prominently mention on your websites any policy around climate change. But in Oregon, we've seen the impacts of climate change in both our rural and urban communities, including wildfires, drought, last year's heat wave that killed over 100 people in Oregon alone. How concerned are you about impacts of climate change? And if elected governor, what would you do differently to tackle these challenges? Jessica. Yeah, I think like many Oregonians, I am concerned about the impacts of climate change. And I think uh, in Oregon specifically, we need to work on resilience, right? Oregonians have a, a special place for the environment in, in our hearts. And I think it's important we wanna have an impact, but we're a small state. So we need to align our public university systems and uh, have them help us with develop new technology around you know, methane pyrolysis, small module nuclear um, uh, reactors, things uh, like battery storage. Um, and then we can take that technology and actually export it to the rest of the world and have the kind of impact that we really want. Cap and trade and some of these restrictive things that help that raise costs actually doesn't achieve any measurable outcomes when it comes to reducing or stopping um, the uh, situation with climate change. We need to also work on water infrastructure in this state. We haven't made it, it's any significant, um, I would say, investments in that in quite some time. So that needs to be done as well. And Stan, when it comes to climate change, what would you do? Yeah, we would not focus a lot of attention on a global climate crisis. We would focus our attention on jobs. The truth is, is that they call it, you know, a global climate crisis for a, a reason. It's a global issue that politicians here in Oregon seem satisfied, you know, resting our responsibility, even though we're an extremely small portion of the overall problem, resting our responsibility on the backs of our hardworking rural Oregonians. You know, we would look to put things online like the Jordan Cove project out in Coos Bay that would have meant thousands of jobs for the folks in that area. You know, the one thing I hope that we've all learned from the Russia-Ukraine deal is, is that people are going to get their energy product from somewhere. And if it's not from us here with our safeguards and environmental practices in the United States, they're going to get it from bad actors like Russia in the Middle East. And so what I'd like to see is, is we need all kinds of new renewable energies and stuff come online. We want those things to happen, but we need to not try to solve a global crisis here on the backs of hardworking Oregonians, and we need to put jobs first. Thank you, Stan. Candidates, uh, time to take a, a breath. It's time for our lightning round. And in this section, we ask you to keep your responses to no more than a word or a phrase. And in the interest of time, we may not ask all five of you each of these questions, uh, but I will ask all five of you this question. Uh, was Joe Biden legitimately elected president? Stan? No. 
Bridget. No one knows. That's the problem. Bud Pierce. He's the president. So you think he was elected legitimately? Elected by the Electoral College, yes. He's the president. And Jessica. Yes. And what is one word you would use to describe former President Trump? Jessica. One word? Or phrase. <laughs> there are so many. <laughs> I don't know if I could boil that down to one word. <laughs> How about a phrase? On that one. <laughs> okay, Bud Pierce. His own man. Bridget. Drained the swamp. And Stan. Fighter. All right. Do you ever see a time you would reimpose a mask mandate, Stan? Nope. Bridget. Never. Bud. No, ineffective. And Jessica. No. Next question. Would you repeal the commercial activity tax, Jessica? I think we should give it a shot. Yes. Bud Pierce. Yes, if given the power. Bridget? Yes, in a minute, if I could. And Stan? Actually, a sales tax. Yes. Looking at the most recent legislative session, is there a bill that you would have vetoed if you'd been governor? And if so, which one, Stan? <laughs> most of them, but definitely uh, some of the gun legislation that came through, especially the one that says, you know, let me lock up, my, get my gun out of the lock, stop intruder, please don't hurt me. Bud Pierce. I agree with that. Second Amendment is uh, so important to protect uh, with veto gun legislation. Jessica? I would have vetoed that one also. I also wasn't in favor in uh, the you know, overtime uh, legislation for agricultural workers. I think that really hurts the actual workers and these small farms that are really struggling okay. to provide a living wage for, for people. So just okay. a word or a yeah. phrase here, guys. Just a word <laughs> okay. or a phrase. The lightning round. Keep it short. And Bridget. Long list, but the gun bill. Okay. And all of the final design options for the I-5 bridge replacement include light rail. Would you support an I-5 bridge with light rail, Bridget? Absolutely not. Jessica? Can we pay for it? We need the bridge for sure. And you'd support it with light rail? Yeah, if we can pay for it. If we can afford Bud? to pay for it, yes. Only if more traffic lanes. Only if there are more traffic lanes, you would support right. light rail. Yeah, uh, I would support and, the light rail part if there are more lanes on the bridge for traffic. And Stan? Nope. Okay. All right. One word to describe Oregon right now. One word, Bridget. Angry. Bud. Promise. Stan? Embarrassing. And Jessica? Potential. And now what is your vision as governor in, again, just one word here, Stan? Unity. Bridget. Relentlessly optimistic. One word. Two words, but we'll take it there. It's all right. <laughs> Jessica. <laughs> Opportunity. And Bud? Improvement. Who is a leader you admire most, Bud? Oh, I think uh, Vicatia. Jessica? Oh, there are many. Uh, I really appreciated Vera Katz's leadership in Portland. Bridget? 
I like what Ron DeSantis is doing. And Stan. She knew I was going to say it. What a copycat. Ron DeSantis. <laughs> You're the and what's something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's something people would be surprised to know about you, Bridget? Uh, that I just became a grandmother two days ago. Yay! Oh, congratulations. It's great to be a grandma. Yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> congratulations, Jessica. Oh, I bake really elaborate cakes. Oh, yeah, we want to taste that, eh, bud. <laughs> I've become a connoisseur somewhat of non-alcoholic beers and uh, really enjoy them. Oh, what do you recommend? I like that edge, you know, course Edge. It sounds like it's not much, but I, I really like the taste of it. And it's uh, good. I like an edge. <laughs> and Stan. Uh, probably that I wrote the bill to legalize professional wrestling here in the state of Oregon. All right. A just a couple more here. Yeah, definitely interesting. And then we're going to move on to the part where you ask a question to each other. Um, here's the last couple. What's your favorite rural town in Oregon, Jessica? Oh, gosh. I love Pendleton. I really, I really enjoy it being there. Bridget? Uh, I, I think Brownsville. Love Stan. Brownsville. Did you say Stan? Uh, uh, Jessica loved uh, Prineville, so I saw that one coming. Uh, uh, I mean, Pendleton. Uh, I, I'm going to pick Prineville. And Bud? Uh, I can count it on the coast. I like Lincoln City, if that's considered rural enough. Okay, and the last one here for you guys, what is the last book that you read, Stan? The last book that I read, um, shoot, um, I just read one, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' uh, biography. It's great. Bud? By Common Sense, Phil Howard. Bridget? The 11 Principles of Ronald Reagan. And Jessica? Oh, gosh, I think I read Outlaw Ocean. All right. Thanks to all of you for playing ball. I know. That was we, a lot we asked of fun you all the, all the questions. Are just so much fun. We had to ask you all. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now we're going to get to an opportunity for each of you to pose a question to one other opponent of your choosing, just one. So here, this, here's the thing. We ask that you phrase it as a question. Keep it to about 20 seconds. Candidates responding, you're going to have about 60 seconds to answer. So Stan, you're going to go first here. Please begin by addressing the other candidate directly. Yeah, my question will go to Bridget. You know, Bridget, you've been kind of as outspoken as me about Christine Drazen spending all this money, basically lying to the people on her past experiences with policing, leadership, or lack thereof on cap and trade and education uh, and gun rights. Uh, what do you think is the most egregious mistruth that Christine said during this, this, uh, this last election? You know, I haven't actually accused her of lying about anything. I think that, uh, you know, Christine is a very capable legislator. I just think that when it came to negotiating with the other side, her leadership abilities or lack thereof became apparent. Her lack of judgment in leadership became apparent because she, did, she didn't lie about what she was doing. She just did not do a very good job of it. And consequently, she's on the hot seat now and has been unwilling to face the base, the Republican base. She has been absent at almost every single debate. And even, you know, she says she's a small town girl from Klamath Falls. She did not show up at the Klamath Falls debate. And I think the citizens of Klamath Falls were thinking she might show up, but she did not. 
Well, it's too bad she's not here to be able to use her free speech pass so she could answer your criticisms. Of, well, now we're going to give Bridget a chance to pose a question to one of the candidates. Jessica, if, what uh, role in government, what department do you think, if you were not successful in the election, that you would be the most capable and talented at directing? Oh, you know, I would love to take on economic development for our state. I think it's really, really important. Unfortunately, we don't have a state agency that's really empowered to do that in a way that uh, I think we need it. Okay, thank you, Jessica. All right, thanks. Uh, Bud Pierce, you're next. One question to one other candidate, please. I'll go to our mayor, uh, Pulliam. So mayor, uh, you're in the city manager uh, form of government uh, in Sandy. And the question I have is uh, when you're, if you become governor, tell us what is your experience in managing vast bureaucracies or vast numbers of people in accomplishing reform and, and getting goals done? What is your practical experience of that so far? Yeah, th thank you for that question. You know, what I would say is, is one is, is I have legislative uh, experience. I mentioned that I actually wrote and, and passed through a piece of legislation that had over 35 co-sponsors from members of, of both parties. So I, I had a level of trust that I was able to build for people to add their names to that legislation. As mayor of my community in Sandy, I talk about a lot of the challenges that we faced when I got in there from almost a million dollars in debt. We had to fill that debt and make really extremely tough budget decisions. I brought our folks along for that. And, and I would just finish up by saying, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, I was pretty vocal. I was out there. We had some city councilors that kind of said, you know, Stan, we're, you know, you're, you're a little further out there than I want to be. And yet when we issued a statement, a letter to the governor on behalf of our community, we had a seven to zero vote. And so I do believe that you look at my track record and ability to address some of our largest problems, my outspoken leadership to do that, and my ability to get, bring people along show that I'm a tremendous, tremendous uh, choice to be our next governor. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. That was a, a good, a easy question from, from Bud for Stan. Well, Jessica, here is your chance to ask one of the candidates a question. Yeah, my, uh, my question is for Bud, but we see this huge increases in healthcare premiums, especially in private insurance. Um, how, what is your plan for helping to bring down the cost of that for Oregonians? That's horrendous, um, uh, awful. Uh, and one third of our dollars are spent currently on process, paperwork, red tape. That needs to go down to about 5%. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, much of that's driven by government, both state government and federal government, lots of work to be done. Tremendous variety in primary care services are needed so that we can create a healthy population, uh, not one based on treating advanced illness. And we really need to free that up. We have too many monopolies. Uh, we need to have transparency in pricing. There's laws in that. They're being uh, not followed in any way. Uh, and there's way too much opacity in the healthcare delivery system. When drugs go generic, uh, pharma can no longer manipulate the situation and, and stave off generic competition. So there's just a whole range of options uh, that actually I'm well in tune with, and that would be a uh, major part of my effort as governor of Oregon. Thank you. 
Thank you, Bud. And thank you, candidates, for those questions for each other. Let's move now to questions for the candidates from City Club members. David and I reviewed and selected these from among those submitted. Some may be slightly edited for brevity and clarity. And candidates, a reminder in this section, you're asked to keep your responses to 60 seconds or less. And the more succinct your responses, the more questions we can get to. And just a reminder, free speech passes. I'm looking at them here. Stan, Bridget, and Jessica, you still have that 30 seconds here. So if we don't ask you this question, you want to answer it, please raise your hand. So let's begin with a question from Amy. Amy, who writes, Portland has really been struggling reputationally, which impacts Oregon and its whole economy. What will you do to help Portland bounce back from the issues it's dealt with over the last two years and to help it become a more attractive place to live, work and visit? I'll start with Jessica here. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, you know, or, if Portland isn't successful, we're not going to have a successful Oregon. It's the window, the door to our state. It's what people think of when they think of Oregon. And so we've got to deal with the safety issues um, that we talked about that earlier. It's really, really important. Uh, we have to prepare uh, that downtown area for reinvestment. Uh, and I think we also need to address the affordability issue in Portland. It's really become extremely expensive um, to live there, to work there. Uh, we have issues with transportation um, and infrastructure that need to be addressed. And so there's a, there's a whole lot of work to be done um, to help recover Oregon and get us back to the amazing you know, quirky city that, you used to, that we used to be and bring back that vitality. Um, but it's got to take leadership. And right now, um, that leadership from the governor's office has really been lacking. And that's what I have to, to offer Oregonians when it comes to recovering Portland and getting us back in great shape. All right. That is your time there. Uh, Bridget, same question to you here. Yeah, three things. Um, the first is the moratorium I mentioned on uh, new taxes and regulations that would give businesses a chance to breathe and maybe get back on their feet. And maybe even we'd see some new restaurants, new entrepreneurs come back into Portland if there was a little bit of relief on those that, that area. Second is getting to the bottom of our substance abuse problem, because it is at the base of our crime and homelessness problem. And the third thing is grabbing that bully pulpit and saying loud and clear across the state and across the country and around the world that Portland has and the state of Oregon have turned over a new leaf and that we are now welcoming and open to business, that we are going to value safe streets so that you can come here, you can visit, you can start a business here and people will get back to Portland. Thank you, Bridget. In the interest of time, we'll just ask a couple of you these questions. Bud Pierce, I'm going to ask you this question from Michael from City Club. How prepared do you think Oregon is for the next recession? Oh, I think we're uh, woefully uh, prepared for the next recession. I believe a recession is likely on the way. Um, right now, it's uh, time to do everything possible to um, uh, ensure the delivery of goods and services and uh, unclog the uh, blocks in uh, supply chains. Uh, it's time to to uh, slow, uh, actually cut back on regulations to prevent businesses from starting uh, and, and growing. I know we have a labor shortage, but when we go into recession, that labor shortage can go away pretty uh, quickly. And again, it's time to think about uh, lowering our taxes and making government um, uh, services much more affordable so that when tax revenues invariably fall, we're not facing the conundrum of needing to raise taxes during a recession. So I think it's coming. I think we need to start taking these practical steps. Thank you, Bud. And Stan, how prepared do you think Oregon is for the next recession? 
Yeah, not at all. You know, you think about just the delivering of services like Bud mentioned, you know, I'd mentioned the unemployment insurance and everything else. We just don't have our government operations that are ready to go. You'd think about how we need to revitalize, you know, business and business development. The fact that we had that Jordan Cove pipeline project that extreme environmentalists stood in the way of that would have created the largest deep sea, uh, deep sea port, you know, between San Francisco and Tacoma, Washington. You talk about the need to move goods and, and get those things moving. That has to occur. Additionally, we've got to create safe communities and safe downtown cores like the city of Portland. You know, there's a big issue right now with people not wanting to return to work, especially in the Portland area, because of how unsafe it is, how unpleasant it is just to be into that community. We need to triple the size of the state police. We need to address the homeless crisis going on that's creating unsafe communities for all of us, and we need to incentivize people to go back to work. Can you, you see that? Yes. Oh, yes. We see Bridget. Yes. Go, go ahead, ahead, Bridget. You know, I want to say, uh, say, speak up on this one, because I think there's a good case to be made that in rural Oregon, they are already in recession and have been for the better part of this last decade. So if we go into a, an even deeper recession, we're talking about depression out in the rural communities. So I think the next governor, and I hope it's me, has a really important job to do to get immediately active in making sure that those counties and those communities are protected a little more. We have almost 300 boards and commissions and appointments we can make, those seats have to be filled by people from those communities so that they have a voice and can tell us what they need to stay alive, to keep their citizens afloat. And that is time there. Thank you very much. Okay, as a preface to our next question, this year's governor race expected to break records when it comes to campaign spending. Some candidates already spending over a million dollars on TV ads. So with that in mind, Debbie asks, what are your thoughts on campaign, campaign finance reform? And as moderators, we're going to add, if you support reform, where should limits be set? Let's start with Stan here. Yeah, I do not support uh, any reforms. I think we have a wonderful uh, system here in Oregon. It's completely transparent. I'm someone that's just a middle-class guy from a small community that's raised over a million dollars from over 2,000 individual contributors, average donation size under you know, $300. You know, you, you juxtapose that with folks who have received, you know, from PACs that are third-party money and transferred large sums of money into their account. We have folks here whose personal corporations have received, you know, PPP funds from the federal government, and then they've turned around and self funded, you know, their own campaign. So I, I think we got to be careful when we say that about campaign finance, whether we're for or against it, there are folks that have turned around and decided to basically use taxpayer funds, you know, to turn around and then, you know, fund their own personal political ambitions. And, and I think that's wrong. So I, I believe we need a system where people can engage in our political process, but we're fully transparent about it. Bridget, same question quickly to you. If you support reform, where should limits be set? I also do, oddly, the two of us who have raised our own money don't support it. Um, the uh, It is true that two of the candidates in the race have primarily self-funded with their own money. Nonetheless, I have also been able to raise, I think, 1.2 million at this point, just from outside contributions. And we, a lot of Oregonians don't even realize we have one of the most transparent campaign finance systems in, this, in the country. You can go onto Orstar and look up where every single donation came from and where every single expense was made for every one of the candidates sitting here. So if you want to know, you can go see. Now, 
that being said, I agree. Get get the money wherever you can get it and let's all compete and let's get out there. If you're a good candidate, you should be able to raise money. And we're seeing that that has been the case. Bridget, both you and, and Stan said that it's completely transparent, but aren't there a lot of PACs with dark money? Didn't you head up one of those PACs that has dark money? It's not a pack that has the so-called dark money, which is as bright as day. It is a, um, actually, it is a nonprofit and it is funded by a single person and his name is Hank Swigert. And we have been transparent about that from the day it was formed and it has no other funding. So it is not dark money. Dark money can come into the campaigns. That is true uh, if it comes in from those sources, but most of the funding that comes in, if you're interested in where it comes from, you can find out. And if anybody wants to know where my so-called dark money, I call it bright money came from, it's from Hank Swigert. Yes, uh, Stan. Yeah, the You're truth raising your is, hand for a free speech pass. I, I am. The truth is, if you go online and look up the contrib- contributors to Oregon Pathfinder, you can't find them, right? You just got to take Bridget's word for it. Uh, additional, additionally, on top of that is, is Bridget, when she ran for the state legislature, she said she was running on a pro-campaign finance you know, reform agenda. All of a sudden now we've got dark money coming from the hundreds of thousands of dollars from a PAC. She says she controls. She says she's an outsider in this race, even though she's been running for the legislature and position for for you know for decades now and been around politics to the point where she she runs and controls a dark uh, dark money pack i'm not quite sure how all that adds up can i answer to so that you, since it's actually on, let me just uh, pass. since it's uh, yeah I, I think we'll let you you answer briefly um bridget okay i ran for the legislature in 1992 and 96 is 30 years ago and the I have signed off before I started running from both the PAC and the nonprofit that I managed. So running for office for 30 years now. No, no, not running for office for 30 years. Been around politics for 30 years now. Absolutely. As an advocate and a spokesperson, I have. I have vast networks and more experience than you do. You're you're outsider, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Thank you, both candidates. But I think, Stan, when you said truly transparent. It doesn't sound like it is when it comes to campaign finance. But let me move on to to Darlene's question from City Club. What will you do to build a sense of community that includes all Oregonians? Jessica. I think we're pretty divided right now in a lot of ways, Oregon, between rural and urban, between right and left. And again, we got to have a a leader who's going to help bring people together. And I will do that by focusing on the issues that really matter um, in in everyday life. Like I said, the the cost of living here, um, healthcare premiums, uh, cost of gas, groceries, prescription drugs, the cost of housing. uh, We've got to have more available housing in this state. We're really at crisis levels. We have Um, some of the least available housing out of all 50 states. So we have a lot of building to do. Um, We have a beautiful state. People want to live here. People want to have that opportunity. And that's what my campaign is about. It's about opportunity. It's about freedom. It's about making sure that we have an environment where all Oregonians can drive. thrive. And Bud, what would you do to build a sense of community that includes all Oregonians? I'm a leader uh, and a person who loves all people. I have a great love of humanity. I've seen many tens of thousands of patients uh, in all, all forms of their illness with cancer and other serious illnesses. I've, I've been trained to know that people are equal and that they all have value and they all have equal uh, value. Uh, and so I take that approach going forward. You know, after the Ferguson, Missouri events with all the racial hatred, 
I actually reached out to my NAACP. I've become a board member of a charitable arm that raises money for scholarships for children of color. Tomorrow night, I'll be at the Oregon League of Minority Voters Celebration, uh, an organization that I've been co-chair of uh, to encourage people of color to vote. Um, so I'm, I'm just a person who, who loves people and wants everyone to be successful, not one group over the other. And if you elect a person like me, I will look out for every Oregonian because that's what I do every day of my life. Thank you, bud. Thanks, bud. Okay, this is a question for me actually here. We're almost a closing statement, so we're mindful of the time. And thanks for our viewers for staying along with us here. So the question is, in your experience, whether as an elected leader, a consultant, or a business person, there likely came a time when you stumbled and you fell. Please tell us about a professional experience where you personally feel you came up short or one you're not particularly proud of and what you learned from it. Stan, we'll start with you here. Yeah, you know, we made a uh, decision uh, that we had to close our community swimming pool in order to support the police. And that's a pool that needs over a $15 million investment just for the opportunity to lose over $600,000 a year in operating expenses. And we had a million dollars in debt for our police that we needed to stand up and keep our community safe. I, I have yet to be able, because of inflation and stuff, to be able to find a path forward to get a community uh, effort galvanized to be able to get aquatics and swimming uh, for our community community. Uh, so that is a challenge that is short for me that I, uh, that is something, whether it's my private life or public life that I, I look to be a very big part of because I feel like it's an important, I, I learned how to swim in that pool. I played high school sports and water polo in that pool. I want my kids in our community to do it, but I, I needed to prioritize our police first. I believe in that. That's the kind of leader people can see in me to the willingness to make tough decisions. Uh, but that's, that's work that's left unfinished. All right, Bridget, same question to you, uh, a professional experience where you feel you came up short and what you learned from it. Well, you know, I graduated from a prestigious college and uh, my career moved along in advance. By the time I was 23, I was managing a multi-million dollar restaurant in Los Angeles. And that is when I really went into full-blown uh, alcoholism and addiction. And that, that took me down. I made one mistake after another and my career began to implode. And I'll tell you what I learned from that is that you have to face the hardest things and you have to be willing to do whatever it takes. And when somebody puts a brick wall in front of you, you got to stop and take stock of where you are and make serious changes in your life to move forward. And that's what I did. It took me a long time to regain my footing, but I did. And, you know, for anyone out there that's struggling with addiction right now, I want to say, look at the screen. You can make it. You can beat addiction. You can run for governor of Oregon. Congratulations on, on your recovery. Thank you. A strong message there. Um, just a quick uh, wildcard question. A topic we haven't covered that you'd like to address in 60 seconds or less. Jessica, is there something we haven't asked you about you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I, I would like to talk about public education. I know we talked a little bit about it earlier, um, but for me, I really think that 
unless we are graduating kids that are that can be globally competitive, we're really going to be struggling as a state uh, long term. We're not going to be able to build the future that we really want. So my plan for education really starts with the, the little kids. Um, we need to make sure that they have the, the right support. They have uh, access to small group instruction, um, that we're also giving parents the tools that they need to help their children be successful. And then as we get into the later years and into high school, I want to put in place a statewide apprenticeship model. They're doing this in Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Colorado, and it's highly successful. If kids are graduating with work experience, a career pathway, uh, college credit, and are really employable right off the bat. And Bud Pierce, is there a topic we haven't asked you about that you'd like to address? I think um, the urban-rural divide, and I think it's based around bringing back the natural resource-based economy uh, to Oregon. Our rural areas are some of the wealthiest in the state when we had a viable timber industry. I think the uh, COVID pandemic and the war in the Ukraine and supply chain disruptions have told us that we have to, we have, to have a natural resource-based economy in Oregon. And if we do the hard work uh, in terms of environmentalism and protecting the environment. If we do it here, we'll protect the environment much more than when it's done in countries outside of uh, uh, the United States. So we have to return to growing food here, uh, natural resources and timber, um, mining if we have minerals, and again, in an environmentally sensitive way. But if, the, if we need it and the world needs it, we have to return to that. And if we can make the uh, rural areas prosperous, again, the divide will melt away. And Jessica, I saw your hand go up there. You do have your 30 second free speech pass. So please go ahead, 30 seconds. Yeah, thank you. I would like to address this issue of onshoring and the opportunity that Oregon could have when we talk about manufacturing. So my business, uh, I'm in the semiconductor industry sector. There is a lot of opportunity in this area. Right now, Oregon isn't prepared, but we can be. And I think we are, we are gonna see some huge um, improvements if we can align our economic development strategy, our land use policy around fostering um, growth in this area. Um, it's really, really important. I don't think enough of us are really talking about um, the importance of high tech in Oregon. All right, and that is time here. Let us move to closing statements now. Yes, we finally made it. You are each gonna have one minute here, one minute, 60 seconds. We're gonna go in the same order as opening statements. And that means we are going to begin with Stan. You have one minute. Stan Pulliam, please begin. Yeah, as we travel the state, we've been on a bus tour, which in all reality is just this is my mom and dad's RV. And as we go around, we ask people uh, two questions. The first is, is who here considers Oregon to be your home? and the hands go up. The next is, if you're having a conversation in the privacy of your own lives about possibly leaving the state, and again, the hands go up. Folks, these are the stakes of this next election. And I talk a lot about the fact that Republicans are looking for a fighter and that we've been in that fight. The other question the Republicans need to ask themselves is who do you wanna see in the fall standing there on the debate stage and taking the fight to big public employee backed Tina Kotek and big corporate fat cat backed Betsy Johnson. We'll take this fight to them and we'll take this fight all the way to the governor's office in November. We humbly ask you for your vote in this May primary election. We would be honored to serve as a Republican nominee. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. Bridget Barton, you have one minute. Thanks. So I'm Bridget Barton. And as I said before, I'm relentlessly optimistic about Oregon. I'm still here fighting. And I am the real Republican outsider. I do not have 
prior elected experience. I'm not a politician. I am committed to be your voice. And I know you're fed up. And I know you're tired of the disdain that our elected officials have for businesses, for working families, and for parents. So you have those two questions I mentioned earlier. Who's going to be strong enough to stand up to this? I am a fighter. And who can get elected? And I am a rock-solid Republican with a 30-year history to show for it. And I can't wait, when I am elected, to deliver this message to the career politicians the people want their freedom back in Oregon. The people want their power back. And I will deliver it to you. I ask for your vote and I ask for your support. Thank you very much. And thank you, Bridget. Bud Pierce, you are up next. Your closing statement, please keep it to a minute. Thank you. You know, I'm a Marine in spirit and in training. And that means I'm blunt and plain spoken. And I've been trained and I run naturally toward danger and not away from it. And I always say what I mean, I mean what I say. And if you elect me as governor, I'm gonna do what I say I'm going to do. Thank you for allowing me to participate. Thank you, Bud Pierce and Jessica Gomez. It's time for your closing statement, 60 seconds, please. Thank you. I know some of you may have heard in the, in the beginning during introductions, a little bit about my personal story. Um, I struggled as a kid. I spent some time homeless as a teenager. Uh, but I was able to reclaim my life. And I look at that um, as a story about resilience and a uniquely, uh, a uniquely American story. And, and I think in this state and in this country, we are losing the ability for kids like me to grow up and be able to overcome those barriers. So uh, today, I mean, I would just like to, to invite people to join me. Let's take Oregon and make it into a state that's focused on opportunity, that's focused on empowerment, so that your kids and your grandkids will have that same opportunity to really grow and thrive in this day. We have a great future ahead of us. Let's not make sure, let's make sure that we don't give it up. And, and I would just like to say, it'd be an honor to have your vote. I will fight for you through that general election process and uh, be victorious as your next governor. Thank you, Jessica. And that brings the City Club of Portland KGW Republican debate for the Oregon governor's race to a close. Our thanks to the candidates and to the City Club for providing Oregonians a front row seat. And that means it is now up to all of you watching. Election Day is two weeks from today. It's Tuesday, May 17th. So do not forget to cast your ballots ahead of the postmark deadline that evening. And if you miss parts of today's debate, we'll bring you the highlights both on air and online starting this evening. That's on KGW and KGW.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm Laurel Porter. And I'm David Molko. On behalf of KGW and the City Club of Portland, have a great afternoon and remember to vote.